This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting Initium, Cognitive Science and Research Informed Practice by Emma Turner. Many books explore the wonders of science and educational research, but few are rooted in the reality of the primary classroom, what it's really like to run a primary classroom and to spend each day in the fascinating company of our youngest learners. Initium looks with care and specific attention at the needs of our youngest learners, the development of age and stage-appropriate practice and pedagogy, alongside with joys and realities of working within the primary phase. With a special code of ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website, and that includes Initium by Emma Turner, as well as my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30 on the John Cat website or via Woods Lane here in Australia. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based education project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests of the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 83 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode we're speaking with Sam Gibbs. Sam is Trust Lead for Curriculum and Development at the Greater Manchester Education Trust. She's an experienced English teacher, school leader, teacher educator and coach who's worked with schools across England on teaching and learning, curriculum design and implementation and instructional coaching. Sam has previously worked at the Ambition Institute and I first met Sam almost exactly a year ago at the StepLab National Conference in London where we had some great chats and I first heard about her fantastic book co-authored with Zoe Hellman, The Trouble with English and How to Address It, a practical guide to designing and delivering a concept-led curriculum. And that book is the focus of this podcast discussion. Sam is also author of the forthcoming book, The Coaching Curriculum, which I'm really looking forward to as well. I absolutely loved this chat with Sam and it was so good that after two hours, when we'd run out of our allotted time, we agreed to get together again 24 hours later to keep going for another hour and a half. I was both amazed and impressed by Sam's knowledge and her ability to go between the abstract and the concrete in a way that provided broad and enlightening conceptual insights, as well as the way that Sam backed every single one of them up with practical classroom advice. I think it's fair to say that this is the deepest curriculum conversation that I've ever had on the HPLR podcast, and it was an absolute pleasure. 
And while Sam is an English teacher, and this is the focus of the majority of this conversation, I think that this is also an immensely valuable podcast for teachers and leaders across all disciplines. And that's because the idea of a concept-led curriculum has implications for everyone in teaching and learning. Also, if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insight, stimulation and resources, you might like my EdThreads newsletter. Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in an easy-to-digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up to EdThreads, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 83 of the ERRR podcast with Sam Gibbs. Sam Gibbs, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Hi, Ollie. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. Sam, if I were to try to sum up my main takeaway from your fantastic book, it would be the idea, teach concepts, not facts. When did you first realise that a concept-based approach to teaching is really important? Well, when I trained to teach myself, I was never explicitly taught how to plan and, and sequence and, and organise curriculum. It was very much planning lesson to lesson with no sense really of how how that all, all hung together. So it would be, you know, teaching year seven, we're doing the boy in the striped pyjamas for six weeks. And then it was kind of what's going to happen each lesson towards that end goal, which is usually some sort of piece of writing. So increasingly, I was starting to notice that as the curriculum was compartmentalised like that into topics or, or texts or areas, that the students' knowledge was similarly sort of compartmentalised. So they could talk about for a period of time, you know, that text that we were studying and then we'd move on to the next thing and everything that had come before they'd sort of forgotten and they couldn't make connections between all of those things. So I found that idea just really interesting and started to think about how I could maximise those, those connections. But I guess at the time... It, it didn't seem to matter all that much, if that makes sense, because the way that assessment was organised in schools seemed to suit that style of teaching. So it would be kind of end of term or end of topic summative assessments. And then at GCSE, which here in the UK is our um, sort of 14 to 16 year olds when they take their final examinations at the end of their time in school, there was either coursework. So at the end of a period of study, they would write an essay or a piece of work, or later, controlled assessment, which was a similar thing, but done in, in con controlled, uh, supposedly, conditions. And so it was all summative. There was never any need to go back to revisit things to explicitly make those connections. But then that all changed in 2015, when in English there were some new specifications introduced. And what was interesting about those was that all those previous ways of assessing went. So it became about line linear examinations at the end of the two-year period of study. So suddenly teachers were asking, well, how, how am I going to get them to remember all this stuff that they've learned over five years? Is that what you mean by linear, linear examinations? Yeah, sorry, by linear examinations, I just mean one, uh, or in the case of English, four exams um, at the end of year 11, so when the students are 16, and they've been studying the subject in secondary school since they were 12, and the examinations were the sum total of everything they'd learned. So there became a need then to think about how are we going to get them to remember stuff they learned when they were 12, but then build on that in a, you know, in a really meaningful way up until uh, the age of 16, and then for them to apply that. And the examinations, of course, are then really super high stakes as well. 
So when those new specifications came in, I was working with Zoe, who's my co-author of this book. We were working in the same school um, in Leeds and in West Yorkshire. And we were given the task of designing the new curriculum to work with students towards that goal. We were really lucky. We were given a year to do it prior to anybody having to teach it. So we spent really a lot of time immersed in curriculum planning and design and thinking, not really having had any formal training in how to do that, but just sort of trying to make sense of it together. And the first thing that we noticed was that the assessment objectives for English language and for English literature, which to that up until that point had been taught as separate subjects, were the, pretty much the same. So for example, assessment objective one is about students' ability to think of high-level conceptual ideas about texts and to follow a thread through an essay where they can express the idea and support it with lots of evidence. And that was the same in English language as well, which is primarily concerned with non-fiction texts. So we started asking questions about, well, should, should those subjects be separate or could there be a way we could teach them together in a more integrated way? And could we do that through thinking about some of the bigger ideas and concepts that hang them together and what would that look like in a curriculum. So we kind of experimented with that with our current year 10 classes that we had and we started to design some integrated schemes of work around that idea. So for example, we were both teaching the text Animal Farm. The way we would previously have done that would have been just gone in lesson one, chapter one, let's go, characters, what's going on, etc. So we, we went in with the idea that the text was really about power and the abuse of power. And we forefronted that idea. So we spent a week with the students really interrogating the idea of power and then the idea of dystopia, and but separate from the text completely to really immerse them in that concept before we introduce them to the text. And what we found was, whereas previously it would take students quite a long time to really start to get to grips with what was going on and some of the bigger ideas beyond characters and, and, and things like that, they immediately, on reading page one of Animal Farm, were thinking about power and the way, if you know that text, the way the animals all come into the barn and where they sit and how it's hierarchically organised. So we felt like we'd kind of touched on something really important and potentially powerful. We then, as we explored our way through that text, started to integrate that with some non-fiction text. So we looked at some examples of writing about dystopia, examples of things to do with power, to do with politics and things like that. And what we saw was that as we built the students' understanding of some of those deeper concepts and ideas, their understanding of the text was much deeper and broader. So we continued with that idea and we felt it was successful. And we got to the end of year 10 and what we started to notice was there were some things I think we'd missed. So although we'd focused on power and dystopia, actually they're just two concepts and the main of English is, is much broader. What they were still not really able to do was to relate that to what writers do to explore those ideas or the kind of tools that they use. So we came up with this idea of a scheme of work around the writer's toolkit. And I think that's when we really hit on the idea of concepts. So we started looking at things like symbolism, characterization, genre, things that writers consciously do in all texts. And we felt we'd hit on something that was deeper there, that was deeper than just things that could be a bit more thematic like power, but things that are going to be relevant to every single lesson, to every text, fiction or non-fiction, to ev everything you do to the study with English. And we found then that their connections became deeper. So they started to link, well, Orwell then Animal Farm is exploring power. To do that, he's using characterization and he's doing it in these ways. So that then became the basis of our curriculum. 
And we tried that successfully and, and taught that at that school for, for a couple of years with, with good results. Where I think we really started to make sense of it in a more sort of theoretical way was as we developed our understanding of cognitive science. So I guess it was a perfect storm that we'd been thinking about curriculum and then the cognitive science movement sort of started to, to happen and sort of make an impact on the schools. And we started to understand that what we were really talking about with concepts was big organising principles or schema or what it is that we hang as we develop schema, as we learn, what it is that we build that schema around. And we came to understand English as organised around those bigger concepts. So for example, if characterization, in my example there, is a central organising principle, we can hang off that lots of different things. So texts, themes, big ideas. And as we build on that, we build our schema around those things. And that seemed to us to be more meaningful and it seemed to match with the theory of how we learn more than we are doing Animal Farm for six weeks, kind of end of. And then we were lucky, we taught at another school, which was a kind of sub-school of the trust we were at the time. And we got the chance to really build that curriculum again from scratch, sort of in a different context. What was different there though, was that we were able to kind of take the, build up with the teachers there in the department and kind of take them with us. And, and that curriculum in the end looked quite different. So I think what, what we came to understand was a concept-based uh, approach to curriculum is really important, but equally important is building that with a department, with a team, and taking them along on that, that journey with you. Great. Sam, so much richness already to dig into. That's great. Um, one thing I want to ask at this point, you kind of talked about two forms of concepts there. There was the, like the power and dystopia, which is one form of concepts, and there was were, there were stuff like symbolism and characterization, et cetera. Did you come up with or does there already exist some language to distinguish one type of concept from the other in terms of those two kind of broad buckets? I think at the time, no, because the, the conversation about curriculum sort of across schools w wasn't really there. So here we have uh, schools are sort of held to account by Ofsted, the sort of inspecting body. Their most current framework really prioritises curriculum and how that's um, iterated within a school. But at the time it was pre that, that framework or just on the cusp of it. So there wasn't really that language or that conversation. I think we would say, both Zoe and I would, would agree that while there are no set definitions, it is really important to have a shared language around curriculum. We would never say, and we, you know, we say in the book that schools don't have to adopt ours. It was very much just for us to create that shared understanding. But in the book, we do differentiate between types of concepts. So we talk about substantive concepts, ones that are not subject specific. So in my example from before, power would be an example of that. So things like love, war, betrayal, sort of the substance or the content of a subject. But obviously some of those would also transpose to other subjects like history, etc. We talk about second order concepts, which I think was our term. I haven't seen it anywhere else, but it might well be. And that was really about a way to categorize the substantive concepts so they could sort of come under that umbrella. So so they were things like structure, setting and symbolism. There was a point where that was the limit of our thinking and we'd organised our curriculum around those second order concepts. What we then came to was what in the book we call the five deep concepts or the foundational concepts. Some people would call them threshold concepts. A lot of people would contest that term. That's why the whole thing about language is just so difficult because it means different things to different people. But for us, those five deep concepts became really important as a way to think about the sort of underpinning structures of the discipline of English. And they're the kinds of things that we think 
when students fully grasp them, it changes the way they think about the subject forever. So for example, once they understand that texts are consciously constructed, that's a completely different way to think about English than here's a book, some stuff happens and I need to to write about it. And I'm writing about Macbeth as if he's a real person doing these things, as opposed to Shakespeare has crafted him in a certain way for certain reasons. That's great. So we've got the substantive concepts, love, war, betrayal, power, and so on. We've got the second order concepts, which categorizes substantive ones like structure, setting, symbolism. I want to de- delve into that a bit more. And then foundational concepts, which some people might call threshold. And these are related specifically to, to your discipline. So ideas like texts are consciously constructed. Let's let's make this a little bit concrete, so or a bit more concrete. I'm really interested to zoom back to you talked about introducing Animal Farm with the idea of talking about power and so on. So I'm I'm really interested what you did, and I'm going off script from the from the uh, interview notes a bit here, Sam. So I'm throwing you in the deep end. What kind of thing would you do in that first week to introduce the idea of power or the ideas of power and dystopia to lay the foundation for actual study of the text? Well, thinking back a few years now to <laughs> 2015, a few things have happened since then. The first thing we did was to, was to look at the yeah the idea of dystopian power. So from memory. At the time, there was a television series on Channel 4 over here called Humans, which was a dystopian series about what could happen if artificial intelligence was to kind of take over. Seems very current. And a lot of the students were watching it. So we started with that idea and, and looked at some, some sort of excerpts from that. And we really explored what is a dystopia. So we took this idea that it's taking aspects of modern society and exaggerating them to create usually fear at its, at its most extreme, but to sort of see where a society could go if it was to go wrong. And usually it takes something really specific. So in that case, it was the idea of humans having robots in their house working for them. So we explored that. And it was important, I think, to relate that to something the students knew and understood and could relate to. So then we did a similar thing you know, with the idea of power. We linked those things together. In the second week of the study, we then took a look at George Orwell as an author and learned a bit about him. And the students started to understand in terms of kind of his political background and his thinking, why he would write a dystopia. So what is it that he was critiquing about society and what is it that he might exaggerate as as part of that? And in that, we looked at some extracts, some other works of his. So we looked at the beginning of 1984 and, you know, talked about that. So by the time we actually came to the the text and we also looked at some poetry around those ideas as well by the time we came to the text they already knew you know clearly an explicit definition of dystopia and what that could look like why someone like George Orwell would write a dystopia and the political motivations and ideological motivations you might have for that and then on the first page of the text, as I said before, you know the idea that the animals come in hierarchically that there's somebody that there's the pig at the front old major sort of looking down on them, his speech, they came to that through the lens of he's critiquing something here about society. He wants to kind of argue something, he wants to suggest something. And they were straight away talking about, you know, the order in which the animals came in. They were already sort of making predictions about kind of where this could go because we talked about, you know, ideas around power and what might happen to it. So it was really just a couple of weeks of exploring those ideas separately. But at the time, it seemed a bit revolutionary. And I do remember the deputy head of the school, who was an English teacher, sort of asking me, Sam, you know, you've got a lot of curriculum content to cover here. Are you sure you've got two weeks? 
to kind of do this before you even start animal farm because you know all the other classes are way ahead of you but i think what what we found was it actually was more efficient in the end because we didn't have to labor every quote every page every point when students were coming at it with that that conceptual lens so, yeah so it's really just the idea of separating the bigger ideas and the concepts foregrounding them and really focusing on them so students develop a deep understanding around those things before coming to the text. Mm, that's great and something you emphasised earlier and that you emphasise in your book as well is the importance of the organisation of knowledge and so you know just there, there you were saying we don't have to label every quote etc and I guess that's in large part because you've already provided like an organisational structure in their long-term memory so when they do come across a quote they're like oh that supports this argument or or th that plays into this characterization or this theme that Orwell was trying to play with. So that it makes it a lot easier to remember. That's great. So to kind of recap what you were just saying, that the, for the format you took there, you kind of started from the students' prior knowledge, something they were already thinking about or aware of, use that to scaffold to and link to the new concept, in this case, dystopia or power. Then you related that back to actually the context of the author which is quite interesting. And I guess the students could compare that to their own context and what's similar and what's different. And then that's the kind of the foundation or the basis for exploring the actual text. And that, I mean, it sounds like an incredibly exciting time when you f do start to open a text and instead of students going, oh, who's this character? Who's, I'm already lost. It's page one. I'm already lost with by all, who all the characters are. They're actually looking at themes and making predictions about what's going to happen in the story relating back to all. Oh, that sounds phenomenal. It sounds like every English teacher's dream. I'm curious to come back. So, You've just talked a little bit about how the substantive concepts of dystopia and power were addressed over those initial two weeks. I want to get a little bit clearer about these ideas of these second order concepts. When did they come in? And so I'm, I know I'm testing your memory here, going back eight years, Sam. When did they or when would they likely come in in relation to these broader ideas and build on them? Yeah, I think at the, at the time as we were teaching these particular schemes, we weren't as cognizant of that as we should be. And, and in all honesty, they, they came up by chance. But I think what we what we learned from that, so for example, if we took the concept, you know, what we'd now consider a second order context, um, concept of setting, as we explored the very first few pages of the novel with the students, we were just, you know, we were doing that automatically because where the animals were on the farm, which is in itself is a, is symbolic, was really important and it came in discussion. But I think we realised later down the line that we hadn't prioritised that enough and we hadn't thought about the order of it. So we ended up talking about setting by default. What we should have done and what we've done since is to think about the organisation and sequence of those second order concepts across a whole curriculum. You know, so it shouldn't be that in year 10, that's the first time a, a teacher is explicitly exposing you to setting as a concept and breaking that down for you. It's worth saying as well that the particular class that I was teaching this to were a, a really high attaining set. Um, you know, they were like a top, what we call like a set one or a top set of students expected to get the highest grades at the time. Whereas the, the group that Zoe was teaching were a much lower ability set. So we did have to go about this in, in quite different ways. You know, she had to think much more carefully about scaffolding and breaking down some of these things. But when we compared notes, what, what became really interesting was how much I was able to assume of my students. So, you know, I would ask them questions like, you know, why do you think the old major is sat at the front on a slightly raised perch and the animal? And they'd say, oh, well, you know, 
Orwell's chosen this this setting on purpose because it creates that hierarchy. Whereas Zoe, with her students, you know, there was more to do in terms of preloading that concept of hierarchy and what how would a writer show that? So she was doing much more sort of drawing on the board and that sort of spatial diagramming and things like that that we talk about um, in, in the book. So I think when we went back and looked at the curriculum again, we were like, okay, well, what are those second order concepts then that we've covered? So structure, setting, symbolism, et cetera. And did we do them in the right way? And, and did we teach them in the right order? And is there a right order? And actually, should we have pre-taught some of those as well? So before looking at chapter one, could there have been something we could have done better? And then I think we came to the realisation that actually those things are so fundamental to the study of English, they should have been done way before that. So probably in year seven, at a minimum, students should be grasping ideas around writers constructing setting and ways that they do that, you know, at a simpler level than probably than Orwell. And, you know, if you go down that rabbit hole, you might then go back and think, well, year seven for us in the UK, age 12, is just an arbitrary line in the sand, isn't it? When they join a join high school, could they even be doing it before that? And um, there are some really good people in the UK at the moment thinking about concept-led curriculum in, in primary schools, which is really interesting as well. But if we kind of hide that really important, what we would call disciplinary knowledge in English, that's so key to the discipline to the academic discipline and we don't explicitly front it up and, and, and teach it, we're assuming that students are going to get it on their own. And, and maybe the students in my top set would have done and some of them seemed like they were doing. But these are students that are, you know, this was an affluent school in, in North Leeds and West Yorkshire. In England, they were pretty advantaged. They read a lot. They had lots of things they did outside of school, which gave them all that extra knowledge to come up this with. Whereas the students in Zoe's group, despite some of those advantages, really struggled to think conceptually. You know, those connections were not obvious. So she had to work much harder than I did, and she was very, very good at it, to make those connections explicit between the themes, the concepts, the texts, um, and the bigger ideas. Sort of what I'm saying is really what we learned was the pre-thinking around the sequencing of the substantive, the second and the second order should have been done much earlier. And in our sort of current work with it, that, that's what we've done. And, you know, we'll have a very different order and different sequence to the department or school down the road. And I, I don't think that, that matters in all honesty, because I don't think there's a right answer to the order these should be taught in. What's really important is that teachers within a department agree together and they decide that together and they're all involved in that thinking. It shouldn't just be, to my mind, head of department saying, this is the order, this is the way we're doing it, kind of off you go. It's, it's a collaborative endeavour to make sense of the subject together. Okay. I'm not sure if you have one at hand, but I'm wondering if you have like a curriculum map for a school that you're working with at the moment, because you've been emphasising, you know, from 12 to 16. I'm really curious, and you've also been emphasising the importance of addressing these issues, these um, concepts like structure from year seven and also revisiting those ideas over time. So I'm wondering if you'd be able to talk us through what that curriculum map actually looks like from when students are about 12 to 16. So we do share a model in the book of what it could look like, although we deliberately don't match it to texts because what we definitely didn't want to do was suggest that in this book we were offering any sort of perfect example or a curriculum that schools should just pick up and go with. And I will say there are schools I'm aware of and people that I'm aware of that have done much better work since. You know, like anything, you you have an idea, you, you hope it's going to be useful. We're not the only people talking about these ideas. There's other people in the English community, you know, talking about this as well at the moment. There will be better examples.
samples now. It's been a 18 months or so since, since we published this and there were some schools sort of working on this already. For a really powerful example of what a concept-led curriculum um, could look like, I would really recommend listeners to look at the work that David Didow has been doing with Oat Academies and they have really generously shared everything that they've done. They've been working on that project, I think, for a couple of years um, and that's all now freely available and he has got a book forthcoming that's going to explain that in much more detail. You know, I'm not going to say the work that Zoe and I did 18 months ago is a patch on that because it isn't. It's really well developed and, and worth looking at. But in, in the book, we do share an overview of what a possible key stage three curriculum would like, what it could look like. I think we would both say now, if we were to go back and rewrite the book, we might change it further still because like ideas should change and evolve over time. What we originally started with was nine threshold concepts or foundational concepts and we literally ordered them so you know in year seven we would look at I think it was structure characterization and genre and the way the terms are divided up here in the UK married with that so we have three main terms you know the autumn spring the summer and that concept would carry over one of each of the terms so they would start in year seven looking at characterization and we would choose a text that married with that a main teaching text we would forefront that concept, we would teach the text, and then we'd integrate nonfiction, poetry, oracy, and other things as well, and then we'd move on to the next one. But by the time we moved to the next concept, which was setting, you can't really talk about setting without thinking about characterization as well, because setting always reflects aspects of characters you know so to go back to the animal farm example old major was sort of the the the, the powerful person on, on the farm the farm was used the book is kind of an allegory of the russian revolution the farm was chosen purposefully to marry with the characterization etc etc so over the course of three years in key stage three students would look at nine concepts that would kind of build in complexity so some of them were really obvious the characterization's an easy one to start with or it seemed to be whereas things like rhetoric seemed to us to be more complicated and required some of those concepts coming together. So we would leave it until the end of year nine to come to that one. Can you just talk us through all, all nine of them? So I, I know, and keeping in mind that you've recommended people go and check out the work of David Dyer and this is this is a 18-month-year-old uh, 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 model, but it's just, I think it's just really nice to have a, a worked example that people can then modify. Yeah. 100%. And I, I share this in, in all humility. And I think we say in the book that we changed our mind at least twice about what we thought that these were. So, you know, at the time we went with narratology and context, characterization and setting, we grouped them together, and genre and theme in year seven. Then in year eight, we looked at perspective, rhetoric, and symbolism even though I just said rhetoric was year nine, we actually had it in year eight. And then in year nine, we looked at grammar, structure and representation. Great. So they are, that's the list of what you would call the, the second order concepts or the organizing concepts. And they're all subject specific. They're all specific to English. Do you, do you recall the, uh, what did you call them? The substantive concepts like the love, war, betrayal ones? So we didn't have a definitive list of those. We felt they should be defined by the department, depending on the text that you're teaching. One thing that we noticed was happening, because it's very common for schools to select almost the same text at GCSE. There are ones that, you know, favoured. So I think the vast majority of schools, you know, at the moment study an inspector course, for example, at GCSE. And they also study um, an anthology of poetry. They can choose from two types, love and relationships or power and conflict. The vast majority of schools go with power and conflict because it seems a way to link to 
the other techs that they're doing, like like Macbeth. We noticed that was having like a backflow effect at Key Stage 3. So schools were choosing things like, oh, well, let's choose a text about power or about conflict because that's going to be important later. So we deliberately stayed away from defining those concepts because we felt that was narrowing or reducing the breadth of, of study that um, some schools were offering. And we felt that was important for schools to have their own conversations about what, about what they could be. So we don't offer a list of those um, in the book. And I think they should come from what a department wants to prioritise and what texts they want to expose students to. I think even in the last 18 months to two years, our thinking around that would be out of date because of the discussions around decolonising the curriculum and, you know, improving sort of representation of voices and diversity as well. That, you know, that adds a new dimension to that, that discussion about those concepts as well. Mm, that's great. Over those three years, how many of those substantive concepts would you expect to address? Would you, I mean, it sounded like from what you were saying, some schools might kind of focus on one and just like do it to death, right? But would you get, is there a sort of a sense of, oh yeah, you should cover two in year seven and then, you know, repeat one of them in year eight and build upon something else or how, how, how should that look? Yeah, it's interesting that, and I think you, you could do this in, in multiple ways. I think the, there are the obvious ones that are really common in lots of texts. So love, you know, is a really obvious one. Power, we've talked about, that's a really obvious one. You know, conflict again. Um, some of them, you know, betrayal is a less um, a less common one. Um, again, you know, it's, it's that discussion to have, and it comes back to that sort of breadth and depth argument doesn't it you know do you do lots of them um and and cover breadth or do you focus on a few and do depth I mean I suppose we would always say to be nuanced around that in the curriculum that we taught you know we spent a lot of time on some of those ones that I've mentioned like love and power because they're, they're very common and they're also kind of universal and they're relevant in different subjects um as well I think though you know as we came to realize that those things were sort of maybe more thematic and less important than those threshold concepts and those kind of five deep concepts that we talked about um it became less important to plan around those things um, and more important to plan around those bigger concepts. Mm, okay. So I'm just trying to link these together uh, a little bit and understand how they interact. So you, you, you offered one phrase earlier, which was something like, you know, Orwell explores the theme of power through the technique of characterization in Animal Farm by dot, dot, dot. So is that generally the way that, students are thinking about how these substantive concepts and these second order concepts are connected and explored. It's like you've got a substantive concept like love, power, war, uh, something like that, that is then explored by the author through one of these second order concepts. Yeah, I think so. I think it goes back to what you were saying before about the framework to give students. And I think as English teachers, we can be really wary of giving them a framework. You know, there is, um, there'll definitely be an argument from some sort of in the English community that by doing that, you are diluting or you're limiting in some way their ability to formulate a, a personal response to, to text. I think what helped us to sort of organize our own thinking around this was this idea of schema. And we started to differentiate between what we, what we call in the book a narrative schema and a disciplinary schema and for us that helps us to make sense of all, how all those things that you just talked about sort of hang hang together what we were trying to move away from one of the frustrations or one of what we call the persistent problems in English was where students 
you know, they can talk about the story and the characters of a text, but they've not crossed that threshold of understanding about how it's constructed. So what I mean by that is, and these terms, by the way, sorry, narrative and disciplinary, again, that's language that Zoe and I constructed to make sense of what we what we were talking about. We're not cognitive scientists and there would be people that would take issue with that language. I'm, I'm sure they would explain it better than me. But we think like more commonly students develop narrative schema around text or topics. So, you know, you could have a narrative schema around Animal Farm where you understand the text really well, the characters, how it links together, how quotes demonstrate that, how certain characters are a representation of certain ideas. You could get all that. And that that's fine and that's great. And you could write a really good essay on Animal Farm about that and do really, really well and do well in the exam or in sort of any assessment. And the curriculum is normally structured you know, that way in order to develop that kind of schema. Where it becomes problematic though, A, is because of the linear examinations that I talked about where students are required to connect between things. But also just in terms of time, you know, there is so much content to teach students now under our um, system it just seemed nonsensical for students to develop a series of narrative schemas around different texts. And actually, one of the things they have to do in their final exams is to critique and analyse texts they've never seen before. So actually, they can't bring that domain knowledge, that narrative schema to that, because you can't have a narrative schema about every single text. So actually finding a way to develop a schema around the discipline, that kind of framework that you talked about, and thinking about how those things all interact, kind of became really important to us. And those connections between the things you said there, so structure, characterization, the writer, they're not going to happen by by chance. So really our attempt to sort of construct this curriculum was around what is the journey towards a disciplinary schema where students can make those connections. For us, the order was explicitly teaching the deeper concept. So texts are constructs. And we would do that almost in a way, so like Christine Council describes curriculum as a tapestry. I see those five deep constructs as the thread that runs through the discipline that that needs to be upfronted. We would then link that to the idea that, okay, if a text is a construct, one way writers do that is through characterization. That's like a tool in their toolkit. That's kind of in their box. And then why do they do that? Well, they want to convey ideas. They want to use that character to express attitudes or feelings or emotions about something. So, for example, in an inspector calls, which would be one that listeners here will know really well, inspector ghoul is consciously constructed to convey some ideas about the unfairness of the class system, the British class system. Then when you've done the the, the bigger frameworks, the text of constructs, big threshold concept, characterization, then second order concept, that's how that's linked. Then it goes to text level. So the Inspector Cause example or, you know, Shakespeare constructs Macbeth to convey the power of unchecked ambition is how that might then feed through to looking at a text. So they're looking at the, te- the text with that kind of bigger lens. And then I think that way, you know, they've still got the narrative schema around an Inspector Cause or Macbeth or, or whatever it is. But they're coming at it from the point of view that all texts are consciously constructed, that this is an example of one text that does it. And then as they develop their conceptualized understanding, they've got that lens then to look at all text, all text. So this for us is about kind of powerful ways of seeing and noticing in English. This is the way that experts in English think. It's the way English teachers think as they read and they notice those patterns and how those things kind of link together. But without that framework, as you described it, 
students are not going to see English as a discipline. They're going to see it as a series of texts that they study. And therefore, the ways that experts see and think in English is going to be hidden to them unless we explicitly plan the curriculum towards that goal. Love it. So to kind of summarize what you were, what you were saying there, we actually haven't gone far, gone very deep into the threshold concepts as yet. So we, we're yet, yet, yet to open that box. But um, when we do, I'll repeat this anyway, but we've got the threshold concept, something like text ask constructs, and it's how do authors do that? And it's through some of those second order concepts like characterization, uh, rhetoric, and so on. And then why do they do that? To explore these substantive concepts, which are important to them, because of you know the context in which the, the author is situated themselves, things like power, deputism, whatever it might be. Really powerful, Sam. So I think we do need to open this threshold concept box because you said you kind of boiled down English or, or di- reduced or distilled English into five kind of key concepts that are at the heart of the discipline. What are these five key threshold concepts? Yeah, so it's important to say, first of all, I really hope we haven't reduced it. <laughs> that was the opposite of our aim. And, you know, the, the term threshold concept is massively contested. And when we were writing the book, we did have really robust conversations with some really great people who really kind of contested that term. So I think in the end, we ended up calling them foundational concepts. In the table in the book, we call them deep concepts. Clearly, we're trying to avoid hanging our hat on, an, on any term for those reasons. Okay, well, let, let's bury the lead a little bit longer. Why did people contest the the phrase or the term threshold concepts? Oh, it all gets very, uh, co- very complicated. I think the original definition comes from, I'm probably going to misquote this, is it Mayer and Land? And they talk about this idea of transformational ideas that once you've crossed to the threshold, you can never go back and, and see the subject in the same way again. There are sort of different ideas about whether that is or isn't relevant to to English, about sort of where the thinking and learning kind of happens in, in that way. And there'd be people better qualified than me to, to, to pick that theoretical underpinning apart. So I think we just decide, you know, sometimes by hanging your hat on certain terms, it can add levels of confusion. And so we took a deliberate decision not to do that. So we've gone with deep concepts. In his very early thinking about this, David Dida, who I've talked about you know, previously with the brilliant work he's done, it was actually a blog that he wrote on threshold concepts, which inspired Zoe and I to start thinking about English in that way, you know, in the sort of very early days of our, our work around this. I think he would say himself now he wouldn't necessarily use that term, and I don't think he does in his recent work that he's done with, with Oat and all the curriculum work they've done, done around that. But that's interesting because for you and Zoe, the idea of a threshold concept was in itself a threshold concept for you because it acted as a stimulus for you to see curriculum in a whole different way. So I don't know. I'm curious. I, I want to. I, I won't delve into it now, but I'm curious to dive into why people were against against the use of the term. Anyway. Yeah, and I think to me, you know, the meaning in terms of the way that you've just iterated it there still stands. You know, for me, they are there are transformational ideas in English that if we can get students to grasp them are fundamental to how they access the discipline. And to me, you know, all students, regardless of starting point, background and everything else, deserve us to show them the way into the discipline. That is, that is our job. We are passing on, you know, the torch of everything, all the knowledge and, and everything we've accumulated about our discipline to that next generation and that we have to enable them to see it in the ways that we see it and not hide and obscure that. So whether it's called threshold concepts or deep or transformational or kind of whatever, 
the essential meaning is important. But just to pick up what you said there, because I, you know, primarily I work in, in teacher development and professional learning. That kind of meta idea that you suggested there around threshold concepts for teachers, I think are really important. So to go down the rabbit hole, threshold concepts are a threshold concept. There are other things, I think, that are threshold concepts for teachers. So I think that's really important. And we talk about this in the book in terms of what good CPD for teachers looks like. We have to be really conscious that when we're trying to get teams on board with these ideas and involve them in the, you know, the collaborative work of curriculum planning, We have to think about their learning as a curriculum in the same way that we think about that for students and think about what those threshold concepts are going to to be. You know, for some teachers, those newer to the profession, there are teachers, you know, where English isn't their first subject. Not every teacher of English thinks about English conceptually all of the time. Some teachers need more support than others to access those ways of seeing and knowing. Many teachers have what I would call unconscious competence in that they do think about English in that way and they do see it in that way, but they're not aware that they do it. And therefore, they don't think about that in terms of their teaching to pupils. So there's a whole rabbit hole we could go down there with concepts and transformational ideas, but that's that's probably another podcast. <laughs> well. Exciting. We'll see how much how much time we've got later on. <laughs> so yeah, let's open the box, Anne. What are the five deep concepts? So the, the first one we've touched on a little bit. So this idea that texts are constructs, that a writer constructs meaning through that text. The meaning can be ambiguous and sometimes deliberately ambiguous, but that in itself is, is kind of meaningful. Really this idea that, and I think this is what all texts, whether they're fiction, non-fiction, whatever, have in common they're always trying to say something. Writers are always trying to say something about the human condition and about wider society. And I think that's a really powerful idea for students to understand is that there's a sort of something to get to, a kind of a message at the heart of every text and that the text is just a vehicle to carry or to convey that that idea. So that's the first one, the idea that texts are constructs. That's really interesting. So uh, the, the last thing you said, text is a vehicle to convey an idea. And so that's what's really meant by texts or constructs. They're the, they're the constructed vehicle that the author is constructing to, to convey the idea. I was in, interested. You said writers are always trying to say something about the human condition and w- wider society. That wouldn't that doesn't seem self-evident to me that they're always trying to say something about the human condition. You know, what if they're just saying something about outer space? You know, like, or is it just inherent that they're saying something about the human condition because they're writing as a human? I don't know. I'm... That's the only thing that you said there that I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not totally sold on that yet. Can you expand upon that? Yeah, there's loads there, isn't there, to unpick? I think where, where this became sort of apparent to me as a kind of powerful way to, to get students to, to think about it, one school that I was working in, I worked with an amazing colleague and, and friend called Sophie Halliker, and we were teaching classes at the same time and coming across a lot of the same problems around these ideas around students connecting around thinking conceptually and I walked into her classroom one day and she had a huge display on her wall that she'd co-constructed with her students and in the middle it said what does it mean to be human and there was all sorts of things coming off it and I asked her about it and she said well every time we study a a text or you know with with my class we're coming back to this idea that writers are kind of saying something about it what what it means to be a human so how humans behave how they interact how they speak to each other how they feel and she was mapping it out on the wall so every time they studied a new text your students would make connections so there was an enormous kind of spider di- diagram 
And I just, I just thought that was really powerful because it was a visual representation of the thinking of that class and how they were connecting things. And, you know, you could see students with pens going to the front of the room and adding their own connections. And it all seemed to come back to this idea of humans. And I, t- I take, I take what you're saying, you know, there could be, <laughs> you know, certainly the sort of books I read with my six year old. I'm not really thinking sort of what's this saying about, about the human condition. And I suppose, you know, maybe I'm not saying every single book a writer is consciously thinking about that, but certainly in terms of the types of texts that students are expected to study in school and the ways that we want them to write about those things in the exams. But but broader than that, every English teacher knows that English is an opportunity to expose students to ideas and ways of thinking that go way beyond exam specifications and text. It's a way to get them to think about who they are as people, about their identity, about their place in the world, about all those things. So, you know, whether or not we could explicitly link it back to, to every text, it's a really powerful way for them to connect texts and to connect with themselves and to see them English as something that's rele- you know really relevant in their lives and in their world. And, you know, we struggle with that as English teachers when we're teaching texts that can seem really irrelevant to students. You know, so ideas about kingship in Shakespeare's time, oof, trying to teach that to kind of students in East Manchester, period five on a Friday. If we can bring it back to this idea that actually ambition is something as humans, you know, that we might struggle with or we might have different levels with, uh, different levels of, that's a really powerful connection to make about what it means like to be human because they all experience that to, to some degree. So, yeah, this idea that every text would be a way for a writer to convey ideas and attitudes about that is what we mean by text being constructs. And the way I explain to students sometimes if they're struggling to grasp it is I'll, I'll talk about the writer being the puppet master. You know, so where they write things like, you know, Macbeth is an ambitious army and in, in, uh, sorry, an ambitious general in the king's army. And they're thinking about it as a, char- as a character. I'll say to them, right, think about Macbeth. Think about Shakespeare as the puppet master. And he's got Macbeth on strings and he's making him do this. Why, why would he do that? Why is he getting him to move over here? Why is he getting him to go over there and talk to Lady Macbeth? Why are they talking to each other in that way? And think about he's controlling the strings and he's pulling this way and pulling that way. And they kind of get the idea then that Shakespeare is sitting above all this, controlling everything and moving sort of the pieces around on his chessboard or the puppets around on his on his stage. And what's he thinking when he's when he's doing that? So there are different ways to you know, to interrogate the idea of construct with students. But I think our argument in, in the book and what we would, we would say is the earlier you do that, the better. You know, I could say to my six, nearly seven-year-old, you know, the other night we were reading the Gruffalo again, um, you know, <laughs> why is the mouse, it, it, you know, in a wood? Why is that a good place to meet a Gruffalo? Like, what do you find when you go into woods? Like, why would Julia Donaldson have, have chosen that? And he would say, oh, you know, the wood is is scary and there's trees and it's dark and the gruffalo can hide there and the mouse is going to be scared you know so this can go this conceptual way of thinking about text can go right back i think to younger children i'm gonna be bringing it out tomorrow with my five months old old sam can't wait (laughs) why do you think the author made this page green what were they trying to convey Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. 
Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode summary will share the ideas of substantive, second order and foundational concepts. The nine concepts that Sam looked at as the basis of the seven to nine curriculum. The five foundational concepts that Sam and Zoe distilled to sit at the heart of English. Links to David Didow's work as mentioned by Sam and the English curriculum at the Oat Academy more broadly. General advice for structuring a curriculum around concepts. Sam's overview of teaching a quality English lesson, takeaways about teaching essay writing without referring to shallow strategies, insights about how we can assess English in ways that get to the heart of student knowledge both thoroughly and efficiently, and so much more. At Higher Tiers, each of our supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR, clip requests of your favourite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So, if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. That's great. Uh, so, text of constructs or text of vehicles that authors construct in order to convey ideas. Deep concept one, deep concept two, Sam. So, the second one is is this idea around pattern and the idea that texts use patterns and that they are conveyed through language. So, I think this is the real, you know, this really links to that second order concept of structure because that's usually the way that we see that deeper concept sort of iterated. What can often happen, though, is in terms of pattern, it becomes about technique spotting. You know, so, t- so students will write about foreshadowing, you know, so writer foreshadows ideas in Lord of the Flies about the demise of order when the conch breaks or whatever, and then they'll kind of leave it there. Whereas really the kind of the deeper concept about pattern is this idea that texts follow often very familiar patterns. You know, we're not wanting to leave students to kind of work it out every time they access a different text. We want them to come at it with that kind of framework to expect to see a pattern and to know what typical patterns are. You know, so a typical pattern might be a cyclical structure, like lots of writers use that. And in order for it to be cyclical, they would have to use certain symbols or ideas along the way. So, you know, for example, in an inspector calls, it's a cyclical structure because it ends in the same way it started with a telephone bell or, or a ringing sound. And the lesson at the end of that play is that for some of the characters, nothing's really changed. And therefore, the bigger idea is that social injustice is kind of ingrained and, and we're doomed to repeat the lessons of the past. So rather than just like as I you know, probably would have done when I first started teaching, plough through that play, get to the ending, and then reveal to the students what's happened and expect them to work it out that it was cyclical. I want to start that text with them understanding that they're going to see a pattern, that the pattern is going to be familiar to them, that it's going to be cyclical, that they know something about the writer and the text and, and the right, what the writer is trying to achieve. And therefore, as we read... We are tracking the symbols of that pattern. And they're always really common. You know, so, so ringing sounds, telephones, the symbol of light 
which is used in, in that text they're not um, they're not uncommon all writers use very similar things but knowing to expect that pattern means that students can therefore be really conscious of it and track it and that's going to develop um to go back to the idea of disciplinary schema they're going to still get the narrative schema but they're going to be building that deeper conceptualized schema as well so that second deeper concept is that texts make use of pattern and we can see that pattern conveyed a writer will convey that through the language my wife and i are watching the american series of the office at the moment and we're just started uh season three and i just i i noticed the other day and i said to her have you noticed that every single episode starts with the phone ringing it just happened it just rings in the background um she said no and i, I rewinded on amazon prime and i said see there's a phone. She went, oh, yeah. But then because I hadn't been taught by you or Zoe, Sam, I didn't then ask, <laughs> why is Ricky Gervais and, and co-authors doing that? And I only now realize uh, the richness that I missed, <laughs> you know, and because that is one of the fundamental kind of messages of the office, like everything stays the same. It's like kind of Groundhog Day, right? And so the, the, the participants in, in the, the, the puppets on the stage have to kind of play tricks on each other and focus on the minutiae of life to kind of keep themselves and us, the audience, entertained. So, wow, you're, even, you're unlocking things for me here, Sam. Yeah, so I would say with that one, you know, you know texts extend, don't they, to, to TV series and box sets and, and things like that and the, all the stuff we watch on Netflix. And, you know, sometimes that's a really powerful way in to talk about a current example with, with students, like with my example from before about, about humans. And I suppose, you know, the way I haven't seen the American office, but it suggests to me, if, if is it an unanswered ring? Are they ignoring yeah, it? It just, it just rings. It just, like, it's just a sound that happens behind everything else that's going on. Right. So it's a, tr it's a trigger for the audience, you know, perhaps to recall aspects of office life, like you say, the mundanity, mundanity at the board and the fact that nobody's attending to it, they're doing something else instead. Yeah. That it really represents the idea that texts use patterns and really familiar symbols. But, you know, you can notice that pattern because you are coming at that with you know, a well-developed schema around some of those conceptual ideas. Now, you might not have immediately made that connection, but as soon as we've had this discussion, that's kind of kind of clicked. And, and some students will do that. They'll do that really quickly. For other students, just the idea that a phone is symbolic of something, that it carries meaning beyond just the fact that it's ringing, is actually really hard. And actually, for some teachers... They'll need to think about that and, and discuss that with colleagues and dig into that before they're really ready to teach it as well. Great. I, I still don't fully understand this. I mean, I'm sure I don't fully understand anything that we've been talking about today, but I, I, I notice a, a large gap in my understanding of what you've just talked about in terms of pattern. So you said text use patterns that are conveyed through language. Text make use of patterns and the writer convey can, the writer can convey that thought through the language. I think I probably need a few more examples to under understand what you mean about the importance of patterns. I mean, if I if I think of some of myself, so and you said the the most uh, common kind of second order concept that's addressed here is through structure. So I'm thinking of different structures of texts I've come across. So there's choose your own adventures texts, but you know they're not particularly prevalent in in literature that's regarded as part of the canon. There's kind of stories that are told from the perspective of different characters that's a kind of structure that i'm familiar with we've talked about this the cyclical stuff or ending up back where you started that's a pattern there's kind of like 
I don't know, this kind of like this familiar journey or quest kind of patterns. So, I, I mean, I can bring something to mind and I can, but I, I don't know, like oh, a journey path a journey pattern okay that's maybe about personal growth or something like that the the cyclical one you, you know you've talked about lack of progress or groundhog day kind of a vibe you help me with some more examples i i need some help here sam i think it, it's just you know coming back to the idea of of why writers do that and why they create these patterns or these um these trails you know for example why would you foreshadow something or suggest something early in a text kind of what would be the purpose of that and where would that pattern go it's just always around the meaning that you're trying to create as, as a writer and the kind of the ideas that you want your readers to, to think about. You know, maybe if we take, for example, one of the examples we give in, in, the, in the book is, is Lord of the Flies, which is the, the perfect text to teach pattern. And we give some sort of ideas of how that might be. So in that text, there's a clear pattern in the sense of the structure and the setting. So the novel opens where it begins. And that's a really common, sorry, the novel closes where it begins. And that's a really common pattern that writers use. So they'll take the, the setting, which is the island. I don't know how familiar you are with this text. So a plane crashes on an island and these schoolboys out and it's um and it, and they sort of interact with each other and it's all nice and orderly to begin with and by the end of it it's all gone to pot and democracy's broken down and, and it's chaos and they're all trying to kill each other and um, just to give you a very simplified view of the, the text but in terms of the pattern at the beginning the island is described as this kind of perfect ideal place but it has a scar and the scar is the imprint made by the plane crash so there's a foreshadowing there that the arrival of the boys on the island is going to damage the place in 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 some way that's going to be worse when they leave it than when they arrived. And then as you go through the text, you can track the pattern of the setting and kind of what happens to it. And by the end, in the final scene, the whole island is on fire and the boys are caught by fire. Oh, I guessed it. I guessed it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what I mean. So you, you're already going to guess because you've got a schema around pattern in the same way that when you watch The Office, it follows that predictable structure, that predictable pattern. And I guess the important thing to say is sometimes writers will subvert that on purpose. They'll mess with your idea of pattern to create a different meaning. But writers play on the fact that we expect certain things and we expect certain patterns and we expect certain order. And The Office or any sort of series like that is like a, you know, a, a typical um, like example of that. So that's, a, you know, maybe an example of where setting and structure are ways for writers to express those kind of familiar patterns. And I think, you know, what we're trying to get at is, is if we go this idea that, you know, students have to make their own meaning from every text that they read, and they should have their own personal response and the teacher sort of shouldn't intervene and what they come up with is valid and there's no wrong answers. You know, to me, that's a potentially really limiting way to think about English for some students who will never get to that place on their own. So to say to them, there are familiar patterns and here are what they are. And let's look at this text and you know, and it would depend on the group, you know, with that group that Zoe was working with, I would explicitly say this text follows a pattern and this is it, and now let's notice it. With the group I was working with, it'd be more, right, okay, what are we noticing here, right? We're noticing some familiar symbols. So in Lord of the Flies, you know, for example, the, the conch is the, is the pattern all the way through. So the conch is the, the shell that they hold as the boys sit in a circle and try to have democratic discussion 
and democracy is a key idea. So as democracy collapses on the island, the conch becomes damaged. So it cracks, it's dropped. By the end, when democracy is completely collapsed, it's shattered. So that's a really powerful way for students to notice how a symbol, that object, the conch, deteriorates in line with the writer's ideas about democracy and to link those things together. Now, that's that's a familiar pattern. The breakdown of order is a familiar pattern in a text. And then the bigger idea is that the writer, William Golding, is trying to explore some ideas about humanity. So to go to, back to that idea, what's he saying about humanity then, about the human condition, that without order, without civilization, without rules, we're liable to fall into chaos. So they're all kind of really difficult, big conceptual ideas. But I think, you know, if we compare that to how I would, you know, probably have taught Lord of the Flies when I first started teaching, chapter by chapter, what's happening, what the characters saying to each other, let's write down some key quotes. And we would maybe find some of those bigger ideas as we went along and maybe never arrive at either each of those first two concepts that we've just talked about, that texts are constructs, that Golding's got an idea here that he's conveying, and he's deliberately chosen these characters and deliberately chosen this place, or that what he's doing to get those ideas across is he's he's drawing on our underlying understanding of pattern, that things have order, that um, things happen in certain ways. And I guess that's what we're trying to say there is by exposing typical patterns, some of the ones that you described, we can help students access that richer meaning of the text and and enable them to see text through that lens of looking for for pattern. Mm. Sam, could you list some patterns for us? There are different types of patterns we we might encounter. So in, in the book, we talk about structural patterns. So familiar ways, familiar things that writers might do. So they might use motifs continually, kind of repeated or recurring motifs. There might be cycles of things. There might be foreshadowing, and we can follow that through as a pattern. There are thematic patterns. There are patterns in genre. So, for example, in the in the genre of gothic, we expect very familiar things to happen in a certain order, familiar settings, familiar characters, for there to be a villain, for there to be a victim, and for that to go in a certain way. There are patterns in characterization as well. So, for example, archetypes or stereotypes of characters, we have expectations about how, how that's going to turn out. But thinking about it more at text level, I suppose, in terms of exposing students to familiar things. You know, an example might be the pattern of you know, reformation. So characters that start off bad and we know they're going to end up good. You know, so a typical example of that, that, um, that students would encounter, you know, would be at GCSE here. A lot of students study a Christmas carol. So that's the obvious example. Scrooge is bad at the beginning. And then the pattern throughout the text, which we expect he's going, he's going to get gooder and gooder and gooder <laughs> until by the end, he's completely reformed. That's a really familiar pattern, that idea of kind of personal growth. And we would need to explicitly, you know, forefront that with students. When they've got that idea, you can then marry that with other types of patterns, structural patterns. So, okay, as we track through Scrooge's Reformation, what kind of motifs and symbols are we seeing and why? So the typical one in A Christmas Carol is the idea of light and also the weather. And again, we might assume, well, all students know that light means hope or truth, and, and they don't. So that's where we need to expose them to that concept of symbolism. Now, if you track it through, so if we take, for example, the one to do with light, in A Christmas Carol, it means truth. 
So at the beginning, Scrooge is literally in darkness. He lives in darkness. So that interacts with setting. When the first ghost visits him and tries to show him a truth and he has a cap made of light, Scrooge stamps on it. So he's trying to get rid of the light. By the end, when he's reformed, he's opened his window in his house and the light comes streaming in. You know, so that's an example of the pattern there is personal reformation, personal growth that students are familiar with, villain made good by the end. How's the writer helping us to follow that pattern? Well, he's using some of these conceptual ideas like symbolism and aspects of characterization. You know, the weather is another one. Scrooge is described as being surrounded by a kind of frosty rhyme, you know, around him. It's all snowy. He's cold in his heart and his character. You know, by the end, he's got spring in his heart. And that's representative of his, of his reformation. So it's just about being really clear that there are patterns we can expect. And I would do that early with students. You know, they know that as young as possible. And, and then as they go through the curriculum, then you can expose them to examples that are more complicated. So where typical patterns get subverted for certain reasons to mess with your kind of understanding of, of what pattern would look like. Interesting. It's so fascinating. So, I mean, one thing that's striking me so far about this pattern idea is that a lot of, unless someone's been taught by Sam or Zoe, they might not notice these patterns, right? And probably a lot of people who who are consuming these texts aren't explicitly noticing these patterns. And if you said, oh, tell me about the conch in Lord of the Flies, they'd be like, oh, yeah, it was this thing that the boys used and I don't know, I can't even remember. We did study it in grade eight or something, I think. I think maybe you can blow into it and it makes a sound. I don't know. Maybe they held it to take turns talking or something. That's what that's the conch in Lord of the Flies, right? So if that's the case, if, if many people don't notice them, how are they having their intended effect on the reader? I think this comes back to, you know, what we are talking about before, about how much of the really important knowledge in English is is hidden. And, you know, it's that differentiation between reading for reading's sake and because you enjoy it and you absorb a story and some of that stuff you will absorb unconsciously, I guess. But for students, that's not what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to expose them to an academic discipline. And I think sometimes those two things can become confused. We need to do that deliberately because the end, at the end of this, they're going to need to sit an examination where they're going to need to be explicitly conscious of the patterns that they've noticed and the, and the way that writers have constructed things. And you're right that there is often a gap between teachers conscious awareness of what they've noticed and how they read text for meaning and what students need to do. But to my mind, we're doing them a disservice if we don't work to expose those ways ourselves that we make meaning and then to pass those on. Because whether we're conscious of them or not, we've absorbed them somewhere along the way. And our enjoyment of text is heavily coloured by that amassed disciplinary knowledge that we bring to it. You know, so, you know, I wouldn't sit there reading Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca necessarily, noticing every single metaphor and every way that that setting's been constructed in the opening pages. I wouldn't necessarily be thinking that, I'd be enjoying the story. But my enjoyment comes from the fact that I'm bringing all that knowledge and understanding to it, I guess. Yeah, interesting. I think it's kind of, yeah, it's the difference between just in enjoying the art and understanding how the artist created it. And it's interesting because it's kind of the same in, I mean, something I did at school was audio design, right? So it's like producing music. And 
in some way it's it's quite interesting because when you learn about the techniques being used and you learn to hear things differently it enriches the experience but also in a way it detracts from it because you become you start to become distracted from the music itself and start to focus on the devices and i would imagine it may be this the same when studying English, I know that I've got friends who've studied film and they say, oh, I'm, I, in many ways I regret studying film because now I can't enjoy a film. I'm always analysing it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, <laughs> people that know know me well would kind of rib me all the time for this, really, that I'd, <laughs> the kind of overanalyzing of things that were meant to be just watching for enjoyment. So, yeah, I can see what you're saying there. I guess... Um, yeah, we do that. It's like to go back to what you said before about, you know, why is the page green? <laughs> As English teachers, that, that's what we do. We we analyse things, we notice things. I guess, I don't know, does that ruin your enjoyment of things? I mean, it doesn't for me. I read all the time. I love reading. I enjoy text. I feel that, uh, you know, my understanding of how they're constructed enhances my enjoyment. Again, though, it's to go back to, you know, <laughs> what we want students to do or what we want them to take from, from the study of our subject in the longer term is to read for pleasure, to understand more about the way people communicate and the different meanings that can have, to be more conscious of the way they communicate and to be able to do that well, to have a voice in their communities, you know, a voice in, in the world. I just don't think you can get to that place without explicitly exposing the journey towards that. And, and, by nature, that means those things that we've just talked about, you know, explicitly talking about the way that that speech and, and language and patterns are constructed. And we have to hope that that doesn't mean it ruins it for them for the rest of their lives. <laughs> Here's another question, which I think is interesting. How many authors of these texts do you think explicitly plan out some of these motifs could actually... Uh, analyze texts in the way that you're talking about themselves and how many of them like have just implicitly got an intuition about oh the conch I'm going to make that you know degrade over time I'm going to end up start start with a pristine iron and there's going to be a scar then it's going to end up on fire do you have any sense of that so you've just asked me the question that every single English teacher will recognize that they get asked by at least one student in every class every year which is miss did the writer not just write this as a story for us to read? Do we have to analyse absolutely everything? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember reading an interview once with Margaret Atwood where she was asked to, um, as a sort of experiment, write an essay on her own book, The Handmaid's Tale, and she failed it. <laughs> and she talked about how, you know, the things that she was were being prized in that kind of essay for her to write about, she hadn't explicitly thought about, and that was the first time she'd really kind of considered it. So I guess my answer to that, to, to, to students, is always, it doesn't really matter. It's not really about coming to some sort of correct answer where you have to work out like like some sort of puzzle what the writer was trying to do and arrive at the right answer there is intrinsic value in the process of meaning making and ways of thinking about meaning within a text whether what you and the writer think is the same or not and it doesn't really matter that the way of thinking, constructing and linking, connecting is at, at the heart of English and for me that that is the takeaway that I want for for students from this subject, that they go away with more powerful ways of thinking about texts, about the American version of The Office, about poetry, about art, about music, about the world, about the ways they interact with you. You know, it might sound huge and kind of uh, sort of convoluted, but I think, you know, most English teachers would, you know, a lot of us have experienced that at the hands of a teacher ourselves. And, you know, I, in the acknowledgements of my book, one of the people I sort of 
acknowledge is my own English teacher who kind of did that for me. You know, I took way more away from my English lessons than an understanding of what happens in Hamlet. You know, for me, there, there was a kind of powerful experience of learning how to think, you know, for myself in my own ways about all sorts of things that were not just Hamlet because he taught me to think in, in those ways and he prioritised that. So, you know, I think there's, whether we agree with the writer um, and whether we get to the right answer is not important. Making meaning has intrinsic value, I, I believe. That's great. And I mean, you know, you acknowledge your English teacher. Sam, I want to acknowledge you now because you're doing this for me right now. None of my English teachers took me on this journey, this conceptual journey of English. And if they tried to, I wasn't listening at the time. Maybe they were, but I don't think they were because I think I would have found it interesting at the time. So thank you for that. And we're only two-fifths of the way through uh, the five concepts. Um, <laughs> but to add two things to this kind of what's the point kind of a question or did the authors actually explicitly think about this stuff? I think to me there's kind of two responses to that. Well, th there's three. One one of the responses is that, you know, there is intrinsic value in the process of meaning-making, which is yours, which I think is great. And I think we've moved, unfortunately, to a very functional view of education, at least in Australia, and I think in, in the UK as well, it's like, was well, this going to help me get a job and so on? And and that that really impoverishes students and impoverishes society. And so I think we do need to get back to, you know, being really happy to have answers like there is intrinsic value in the process of meaning making to ground ourselves in the power of knowledge and the power of learning. So that's answer one, which is your answer I stole. But some other answers I think to to what's the point is, it's true that many authors and probably many of the best authors actually do this implicitly, but there's also a group of people who, who would like to be authors, who, who would enjoy being authors and creating things who do not do these things implicitly. And by making them explicit, we actually open up those possibilities for them to create fantastic work. So that's one thing. And another thing is that these ideas aren't restricted just to English. Communication <laughs> is something that needs to happen right across the board. I mean, Repetition, returning to motifs, I run a podcast. If I do that well, that becomes funny. It kind of can convey certain ideas to do with, you know, what I'm trying to get across, what the guest is trying to get, get across. You know, if we're writing advertisement, whatever it might be, we can draw upon these societally recognized tropes or motifs, whatever it might be. So I think it's also limiting to think that this is just something that authors of, of books like Lord of the Flies and people like Shakespeare do as well. So perhaps these concepts become even more powerful when we do take them to new domains uh, because that's when, you know, creativity really flourishes when we get that kind of cross-pollination. So that's, that's me having an attempt at answering my own question anyway. No, I mean, I'd, I completely agree. And it goes back to the idea, you know, wouldn't you understand the concept of pattern as a threshold concept? You look for it in everything, you know, we and, and there is a need for young people to grow up more consciously aware in all sorts of domains about where that happens. I mean, it's making me think of, you know, dur during the, the COVID pandemic, um, politicians made great use of pattern to their own ends. You know, so here in the UK, every day at five o'clock, there was a briefing in the same familiar setting. It would be opened in the same ways with the same kind of stock phrases. There were constant re repeated use of meta metaphors about flattening the curve and that kind of thing. That was a comforting pattern in the end, you know, all of us, five o'clock switching that on, there was kind of reassurance in that that pattern. But equally, if you interrogate that pa pattern, it was manipulating us in certain ways to think to think that it was all under control and it was all being, you know, sorted out. And so th there's that sort of thing as well, as you've just articulated uh, brilliantly. 
which is that patterns are everywhere and there are ways of thinking about them that are intrinsically useful way beyond just study of a, a GCSE syllabus. Mm. And they have effects on us, whether that, that those effects were intended by the quote-unquote author or not. I mean, the English teacher might say that the the government held the briefings in the same way, opened the same way every time. The economist might say that uh, the politicians were lazy and couldn't be bothered moving moving locations or, or thinking of different ways to open their briefings. But regardless, the pattern has a has an effect on the audience. And I think that's the, the, the valuable thing to understand or one of the valuable things I said. Great. I think I'm starting to understand the idea of pattern a bit more, Sam. But I have five more questions. No, I'm joking. Let's go into the big idea number three. What is it for us? So this is the idea that texts are informed by the contexts that they're written in. I guess the idea that a text is sort of a product of its time, I think that's quite a, dif- a difficult thing for students to grasp. And I think this idea of sort of chronology and history and where texts are placed within that is, is kind of really important. One of the things that English teachers will recognise that you can see a lot of in essays is students referring to people in them, them times or making sweeping generalisations about women over time. You know, so they'll study, you know, something like an inspector calls, which is written in 1945, and sort of talk about women in that in the same way that they would talk about it in texts written in the late 1800s. So women, women were oppressed by men, uh, you know, as if that was exactly the same. So this idea that contexts are different and and that the writer is living within that context is 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 really important you know so when we talk about you know was was lady macbeth an early feminist whether we never would talk about that you, you can't consider that within the context of 2023 where our understanding of that idea of feminism has, has has moved on so I think that's why that's really important. But we can then explore things like how groups are represented. You know, so a typical example would be Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, which was a staple of the UK English curriculum only a few years ago, is now considered to be really problematic for good reason because of how it represents groups of people. Therefore, I think if we are going to teach it to students in 2023, we have to be explicit about that representation and consider that text as a product of its time and Steinbeck's thinking as, as a product of that, that time. So that's where that concept comes from, really. Um, the idea that the text is a product of the context it was written in and a writer is heavily influenced by that context. I like it. And these ideas are kind of fitting together. You know, the, the text is a, a construct or a vehicle created by the author to convey an idea the patterns are tools that the author employs to construct the, to construct the vehicle to convey the idea, and the author themselves are a product of the context in which they, you know, existed. Great. Big idea four. So the fourth one is is the idea that every text is an argument in some way. By argument, we don't mean a conflict, more a um, an expression of ideas or an attitude towards something, and that that can influence us. So thoughts, feelings sometimes behaviour. And then some examples we give given the book around this are, you know, that it might be an argument around social and political change. So we've talked about, you know, an inspector calls and ideas around the injustice of the class system. It might be an argument around redemption. So with the Christmas carol, ideas around hope, something like that. So that that there's always a an idea or an attitude or an argument at the heart of a text and that the text can influence us, our own thoughts, feelings and behaviours through that argument. How is that different from the first one, texts or constructs or vehicles that authors construct to convey ideas? 
I think it's being more explicit about the idea that there is an a- attitude really, or a kind of um, an idea to be conveyed in, in every text. Whereas the idea of text being constructs is kind of broader. And this idea about that you're constructing meaning through text, the idea that every text has an argument that influences us in a specific way, I think is more specific around intention and how attitudes and ideas are conveyed. Okay, that makes sense. And I think I think the the first idea that texts are constructs or or like there is a puppet master is is a big enough concept in itself to stand alone because for, for many students they're like, what? What are you talking about? It wasn't Macbeth a real person or like Macbeth's Macbeth's Macbeth. What are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? What was Shakespeare trying to say through Macbeth? That makes no sense. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. And and actually, that first concept about text being constructs, you know, you might argue is a sort of um, an umbrella concept that the others will sit under. But that way, madness lies because we're going to start organising them all again. And <laughs> but well, you know. Just, just remember, Sam. There is intrinsic value in the process of meaning making and organising ideas. So, <laughs> uh, there's a motif that it's going to be coming back again and again in the podcast because it's, it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And and I and I was seeing that the first big idea is that. And you could see I was trying just before when I kind of recap that the you've got the the construct that conveys ideas, the patterns used to convey the ideas, the individual, uh, you know, the the individuals are product of their contact context which then shapes the ideas and then this one like what they're actually trying to say something it does all kind of kind of fit uh within that big idea five so th- this one in some ways could be seen i guess of as the um let's go back to that idea about meaning making the intrinsic value th- this one is that readers construct meaning as they read so i guess this is really the idea that we each have a personal experience of a text that can never be replicated. So as we develop our own understanding, we make our own connections, we make links, because everybody's prior knowledge is different and everybody comes to a text, you know, with a different scheme to start with, and everyone's going to notice and, and link together different things. We're never going to interpret a text in exactly the same way. I think this speaks back to the idea of there being no right answers in, in English, but some students find that immensely frustrating because they want they want there to be a right answer. To me, it's quite liberating to say, you know, there are definitely wrong answers, but there are a range of right answers. And actually the way that you construct your own meaning and your own response to this text is valid and, and, and valuable. What we've seen of seen a lot of, I think a lot of English teachers w- would agree with me, is that this idea of kind of the impact or the effect on the reader and that that leading to some quite meaningless writing from students, kind of this idea of the writer's done X and the effect on the reader is Y and them not seeing themselves as the reader, almost like they try to second guess what some other nameless reader somewhere else would think and there being a right answer. So the impact, um, the effect of Scrooge um, Dickens describing Scrooge as cold is it makes the reader think, you know, he's not a very nice person or it makes the reader think that he's going to do bad things rather than what this sort of deeper concept is getting at is, is that meaning is created sort of individually and our own interpretation is valid and valuable but it's informed by certain things. So our own background, you know, our own experiences, our own knowledge that we bring to a text, we will bring to the way that we make meaning from that text. And where, where we see that, you know, 
manifest most problematically is with the students that we teach that are the least likely to have had those background experiences and have that background knowledge that's going to enable some of those connections. So we give some examples of that, um, you know, in the book. So he gives a, um, a clear example of some students we worked with where we took them out for the day to a um, sort of local sort of national trust property. And, you know, many of the students there, we were working in a really disadvantaged area of Leeds at the time. They'd never been to a farm. They'd never seen a sheep or a cow. They didn't know what the the farmer on the farm was doing. It was the, the whole thing was a kind of a whole new experience to them. And we had Zoe and I had a discussion on that walk about some of the ways that might manifest, manifest in the classroom. For example, if they thought that the farmer was the owner of this huge property that we were on at the time, what therefore was their understanding of the concepts of class? And, and hierarchy and power and how would that maybe disadvantage them in understanding some of those kind of bigger concepts so I think that idea yeah constructing meaning students need to be aware of that in the sense of valuing their own individual interpretation and knowing that, that, that that's important but teachers need to understand that concept particularly when they think about how they go about enabling our most disadvantaged students to access the curriculum as well and where they might need to do more work to fill in some of those gaps so that students can construct their own meaning. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense in terms of the value of teachers understanding that that concept. I'm curious, for, for the other four concepts, it's quite it seems clear to me how they lend themselves to students constructing more nuanced answers to English questions. So, you know, first they have to understand the text of constructs so they can actually speak about the author as an agent. They need to understand that patterns are used so that they can identify them and discuss them and how the author has used them. Uh, they need to understand the context of the author and how it's influenced the author so they can speak about that. They need to understand that every text is an argument so that they can talk about the points and the arguments that the author is trying to make. With this last one, you know, readers construct meaning as they read, how would you expect or hope a student brings that to bear in a response or in their understanding of, um, of a text? I don't think with this one it's so much about seeing it in an answer in that we'd be able to spot where they've done that. It's maybe a broader idea about, about personal response and, as I said, like, the validity of that and you know in the classroom for me that would look like student uh, teachers explicitly utilizing strategies and, and ways of teaching texts that enable that level of kind of personal response so so for example some of the some of the ideas that we look at in the text around um uh, sorry in our book around diagramming and mind mapping and things like that you know what what I think you have to be really careful is when you when you model those things to a whole class, what you can sometimes end up with is everybody copying the same thing from the board, then everybody has got the same response to the text recorded, and then the writing that they produce kind of follows that that pattern. So it's about think, you know, using teaching strategies that enable students to construct different meaning, like not doing all the thinking for them. So, you know, for example, if you're looking at, at, at bits of text or bits of language. A way that I would do this when I first started teaching is have a quote on the board and we'd start an analysing and annotating it and everybody would copy down the exact same thing. That's not creating a space where, you know, sometimes you have to do that for, for valid reasons, but by and large, that's not creating a space where pupils are constructing their own meaning. They are just writing down the meaning I've constructed in front of them. So for me, it's less about I'm looking for that specific concept 
in an in an in an essay or I'm able to notice it. It's about I guess it's a a process of assimilating all of the other concepts and things that we've we've talked about and, and kind of valuing that process of their own construction of meaning and their own relationship with the text. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So it's it's about recognizing that we need to kind of create space where the pupils construct their own meaning and and link the ideas to their own prior experience in such a way that they're going to stick and actually make sense to them personally. Is there a place for students to bring self awareness into like their essays and writing? Like it had this effect on me because of the context in which I was brought up. Like, is there ever a place for that? The way that the examination system is constructed here at the moment, I don't think there's, unfortunately, there's a place for in the final exams, but the final exams aren't the only end goal. And, you know, certainly you would hope to see across a broad and balanced curriculum, plenty of opportunities for students to bring themselves, their own awareness, their own interests, their own understanding into writing and into English lessons and into the way that they interact with texts. I mean, they do need to do writing, piece of creative writing in their exams, but they're very constrained by, you know, specific assessment objectives. And I think most teachers would be a bit wary of <laughs> letting students go too rogue over those things, because of course, we're all very aware of the high stakes for students in their future lives of the end results of those exams. But yeah, certainly what we're trying, uh, you know, our main argument in the book is we shouldn't be teaching towards those really narrow examinations. There are ways we think, you know, but it's not mutually exclusive. You know, lots of things have happened in, in the way that English has been taught, I think, in this country for a very long time that have been distorted and skewed because of those final exams. And I guess what we're saying is you can still have that and you can have still have those really good outcomes and actually probably better outcomes if you approach English in this more conceptual way. And there is space within that for students to do all those things that you've just talked about um, to bring themselves and their own awareness and their own understanding, their own interest to the subject um, as well. We just can't measure it. That's why we don't do it a lot of the time because it can't be measured and quantified. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, though, it is also really interesting for a student, for a couple of students to look at a text or look at their reactions to a text and say, why does this seem to have really moved my classmate? And I don't really care about this text. Right. That, I think that's an interesting question to, I mean, I, I don't recall ever interrogating that question when I was in English either, but I, I think that that's an interesting question. That's the kind of question that this big idea number five does lend itself to as well. Yeah. And very, very often students will say, well, it hasn't had any impact on me. I don't get it. I don't like it. It means nothing to me. It's irrelevant. And I guess the answer to that is, you know, that's absolutely valid. But studying the discipline of English is about constructing for an examiner in the end, because this is how it's measured, this is the reality, a thread of argument. And so it's really less about whether you personally enjoyed it subjectively and more about that meaning making. And you're showing your skill and your ability to construct a, a thread of an argument throughout an essay and to, to show and to demonstrate how you've made that meaning. Um, and for me, again, it comes back to the difference between English as an art, you know, that we can enjoy and we can take pleasure from in, in all aspects of our lives and the studying of English as an academic discipline and the things that students need to do to acquire that disciplinary schema. And, you know, for some students, they'll only ever want to use English as a gateway to their next thing, which is college or university or whatever. That is absolutely fine. And for those students, we've got to really use the time we've got them in school to try and do the best we can in the hope that even if later in their life, 30 years later, they pick up a book and think, oh, I remember, remember Miss telling me about patterns. Like, 
or they might never again, but we've got that time with it. And we've got to make it as rich as possible. And for those students who are going to carry on down this path and maybe want to study English or, you know, they want to become readers and writers or they're going to enjoy this for the rest of their lives, you know, brilliant. It, it works for all of them. But yeah, it would be crazy to say that for every student, they're going to have this like deep, meaningful, uh, really kind of rich connection with every text that we give them. Of, of course, they're not. We just have to do more to scaffold it and to make this kind of hidden meaning explicit for for those students so they can achieve their potential as well. I'm trying to remember what, what you called the the concept mapping kind of thing where the live, di- it was live diagramming or something. What do you call it? There's kind of different examples of it. I mean, I think what we're trying to get at with 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 all of that diagramming, I think you referred to it as spatial diagramming. I think we just call it visual mapping or something like that. But it's it's really the idea of how you expose thinking that we were trying to get at. Oh, hold on, yeah, here we go. Cool. I, I, I was trying to find the point in my notes where I referred to. It. You did call it spatial diagramming, and oh, book. did we? Right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I got that off you. <laughs> you remind me what's in my book. <laughs> No, it's all good. I definitely need that a lot of the time as well for my own books. Thanks, Sam. That was that was awesome. The five big concepts, and I might I might, might actually just recap those for for listeners. So the first uh, big idea was that texts are constructs. You know, texts are vehicles that authors uh, construct to convey their ideas. The second one was patterns, and that texts use patterns or authors use patterns uh, that they use that are conveyed through language, and that you know they use these in systematic ways to. Uh, have an impact on the reader. Third idea was that texts are informed by the context that they're written in. Big idea four, every text is an argument or an expression of ideas. Big idea five, readers construct meaning as they read. I'm keen to zoom in a little bit more, Sam. Now, just before zooming out again, and this is into the classroom. So when I think of English teaching, and I'll let you in on a little secret, I've actually put my hand up to teach some English next year. <laughs> being a math teacher because and this was in large part because I was so excited by your book and I was like this is amazing I want to like give this stuff a crack so I'm not sure if the school's going to give me the tick yes yet but I am definitely excited about it but that being said my knowledge of what actually happens in an English classroom what it looks like what it should or could look like is pretty limited like for maths I get it. it's like explain a theory do a, do an example get students through the example check that they understand it hopefully and it, Though to be, be honest, after reading your book, I'm thinking more about the conceptual level, and you know, sh- should I be, should I have outlined the five big concepts of maths? And that's another question I was wanting to get to, and we may or may not get to today. But I, I, I know what a maths lesson looks like. I'm not as clear about what an English lesson looks like, and especially around these kinds of this concept based approach. So, if I'm a teacher standing at the front of a class in an English lesson. What are some of the things I might be doing to teach my students in this way? So the first thing you know, to think about that, that maybe makes English different from, from other subjects is often we think about it as a subject that results in a, in a product and the product is more often than not writing or, or essays. And what can happen there is that lots of English lessons become about all the things we need to do towards the journey of writing an essay. You know, so that might start in, uh, you know, as young as, 12 and sort of our year seven with writing paragraphs you know so it's, something is taught there's some sort of discussion around it and then the kids write something and it all becomes about that product for Zoe and I you know we would say English is writing is the product but English is really about thinking so for me a good English lesson is one where students are doing lots of thinking and and often that comes out through talk and thinking is enhanced by talk sometimes it just looks like them doing 
you know, showing their thinking in various ways or been given various ways to think about text. So the first thing for me, you know, if, you, if you're picking up English for the, for the first time, and good luck to you, and I'm sure it'd be brilliant, is to be really cognizant of how thinking happens in English. And it's really easy to get it wrong, I think, particularly when you're modelling that to, to students. So one thing I personally have to really work hard to do is to rein in my tendency to be a bit scattergun and get carried away because my thinking will go off on lots of different tangents. And in the early days of you know, working with, with a class before I get to know them properly or where students need that thinking to be more scaffolded, that's something to sort of be really, really careful around. I think then for me, good English teaching is about having a clear sense of the goal about what thinking looks like to get towards that goal and then modelling it carefully. So if I give you an example, um, yesterday I was teaching a year 11 class and we were looking at a poem which teachers here will recognise called Checking Out My History by John Agard. It was the first time I've taught them properly, don't know them well at all, and they're a lower attaining year 11 class um, and there's some particular challenges in that class for all sorts of reasons. So, you know, I was really conscious of building some foundations around that poem. There are some things they need to know before we could start reading the poem. You know, and some English teachers would disagree with that. Some of them would say, go straight in with the poem, read it and make the meaning together. I started with my goal. So by the end of the lesson, I wanted them to have a sense that the poem was about power and people who use power to suppress freedom of thought. Now, this is a a low attaining class. They're quite tricky. That might sound you know, really, really ambitious. But my goal was a sense of that concept. They'd done sort of a bit of stuff before on power, looking at some other poems. So the beginning of the lesson, we always start because the school I'm working in, this is part of their routine. They start with some retrieval practice around some concepts and ideas. Then it was about knowledge building and sort of input. So I shared with them a few some some key vocabulary. We looked at the word Eurocentric. We looked at the word distort. I made sure they understood what that meant. We looked at the author's background, his intentions and his attitudes. So they had the idea that this author was interested in Eurocentric views and how um, the British education system kind of had distorted his view of his own history. So that, again, that sounds, you know, we did that in a very quite a directive way, I would say. I taught them the vocabulary, I gave them the knowledge, they took some notes. So we're probably about a third of the way into into the lesson. We then looked at the poem. So I guess this was sort of like a micro version of that example from before about George Orwell. I was trying to forefront some concepts and ideas before we saw the text. So that was pretty didactic, you said. It was pretty didactic. You were like, here's Eurocentric, here's a definition, copy the definition to your book. Yeah, and we, you know, we talked a bit about it. So when we, I, we talked about what the word Eurocentric mean, I said, what, where does the word euro come from? They actually had, they latched onto the idea of the euro and currency and money. So I sort of linked that back to, you know, it is about, we're talking about Europe, that's the country. Yeah. So it, it wasn't just me kind of talking at them. I did, we did a bit of Q&A, but their knowledge was, you know, I could have spent the whole lesson asking them lots of questions about the poem and we wouldn't have got to it. So yeah, there was a bit of knowledge building with a bit of their their input and not everybody would agree that that's the right way to do an English lesson you know that that's the way you sort of input the knowledge but knowing this class and the context we're in and they're in year 11 and they've got their exams in nine months there's some decisions to be to be made there so we got the poem um, to me we we uh, have visualizers in every classroom in the school so I put the poem under a visualizer to me, then, there's a couple of things going on. I need to get them to understand this poem, but we're not going to do every line. We're not going to do every quote. And they don't need to know that. So my idea was three things about three things. So I'd 
planned prior to that lesson, what are the three bits of this poem they need to understand, or the three quotes, or the three parts, to get to this idea of power being used to suppress thoughts. I'd pre-planned that and I knew which bits I was gonna I was gonna pick out. Again, some English teachers would say, you're just directing what they think. But for me, it comes back to that framework. I've got the bigger concept as the goal where I want them to get to. We could spend an hour trying to get to that goal, but they all pick out three different things and some of them will be wrong. And again, it comes back to where are these students in their journey? They're in year 11. They've got lots of gaps in their knowledge. To me, that you know, that, that's appropriate. So we went into the poem. The first line is, uh, the first two lines are, dem tell me, dem tell me what them want to tell me. So it's this idea that, um, that the education system is telling him what to think. So I said, so my idea now was two things. I was going to model my thinking out loud. So I was going to try and model how, what questions am I asking about this poem? And I'm going to ask them out loud so they hear me asking them. And if they can, they can answer them. We can have a discussion as, as we go along. And I'm also modeling the process of annotation which again is something we don't always explicitly teach, but I want them to see me on the board. What am I underlining? What am I highlighting? What am I writing? Because they really struggle with that. And that that's the product of meaning making. By the end of the lesson, they need to go, they need to go away with something recorded that captures the meaning that they've made, because if not, they're going to forget it. So there were two things going on there, modelling thinking out loud and modelling annotation. So I got the poem from the visualiser. You know, and I'm not claiming this is an amazing, you know, top-notch English lesson. I think this is the bread and butter of what English teachers do most, most days. So I said to them out loud, right, Dem, tell me, who could Dem be? Who could Dem be? Who are we, who are we talking about? Who, who is telling him what to think? And straight away, you know, some of them are saying, people in power, schools, teachers. I'd write, okay, is it teachers? You know, have I decided today what I'm going to teach you? Did I pick this poem out of nowhere? No, no, miss, you're told to by, by the government. <laughs> they tell it, okay, right, so it's the people above me. So it's the people in power. Okay, so we made sanitations. Then the next line is about they blind me. They blind me to my own identity. So again, I asked some questions out loud. So I said, okay, so hang on. So he's being told what to think here. Is he actually blind? Is he actually literally blind? No, miss, he's not actually blind. That, you know, they're kind of answering. Right, okay, so what could that mean then if he's not actually literally blind? How else could you be blinded? So I'm trying to get some sense of, you know, remember, I don't know the students well, how conceptually they actually think. So are they able to go, that's that's actually a symbol, that's a, that's a metaphor? And actually they did, they did. And one of them said, no, miss, he's metaphorically blind. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty blown away by, by that. And I said, okay, what, what does that mean? To metaphor? Well, he's not, he's not actually, he can see, but he can't see what's hidden. He can't see what's really going on. They said, okay, so we annotated that. And then one of them said, miss, he can't see the hidden truth. It's hidden. So, okay, so what's being hidden? So we were doing a lot around just this kind of one quote, but quite quickly they were getting these kind of conceptual ideas. And so all I did to get them to that, who could that be? Hang on a minute. He's being told what to think. Who's telling him that? Hang on. Is he really blind? Or is that something else going on there? Is that, is there a deeper meaning? Okay. What does that, what could that mean? You know, and if they didn't know, I wasn't going to waste, I'd tell them and we would annotate it together, but they were giving me great answers. They didn't know every line by the end of the lesson. We actually ran out of time a little bit. So we actually only did two, three things about two things. So I need to pick that up next lesson, but they did get the concept. And by the end of it, they were all clear, you know, this is about powerful people, stopping people less powerful from thinking and, and learning about things they should be learning about. And to me, you know, that's a different approach that I would have used in the past, which is line one, 
let's annotate, me write it on the board, they copy it down. Line two, me annotate, they write it down. And I'm pretty certain that that's more powerful and more memorable. So when they come back next lesson, we'll start the lesson with retrieving some ideas around that concept and revisiting it. Then we'll go back to the poem and look at it through that lens. So I might say to them, right, last time, you remember we talked about the writer being blind and what was he being blinded to, right? Are there any other words in the poem that are linked to the idea? And there is, there's a line about an eye being bandaged. So we might go in with that. So again, that's nothing, you know, revolutionary. It's essentially kind of retrieving some ideas from previously, and some of them are going to be really important to this lesson around power. It's building a bit of foundational knowledge and checking what they know. It's giving them some input, so the new poem, but I'm making conscious and ongoing decisions about how much they can handle of that. And they did quite quickly get to some conceptual thinking. I built on that. I asked a lot of questions out loud, and some of them I could answer and some they couldn't. And I modelled how you would annotate a poem kind of around that. And I think there was no writing at the end at all, but there was an annotated poem and an understanding, I think, of, of a concept. Bread and butter English teaching, I would say. I would love to just ask you a million more <laughs> questions about, about that, Sam, but I know that you need to, to go very soon in six minutes. And so we've just negotiated through the powers of editing that you didn't hear, audience. We've just negotiated. We're actually going to come back tomorrow. So this will probably be a two-parter. This has been two hours. We, we said we're aiming for an hour tomorrow. Let's aim for an hour. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But I can't thank you enough for today, Sam. It's been absolutely fantastic. Like I said, you've really been opening my eyes to what English teaching can be. Uh, you've given me an experience that I wish I had have had in my own in, in my own classrooms as a student. Uh, and I can't wait to pick up on some of these themes tomorrow and, and continue the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Holly. It's been a pleasure. I, I look forward to continuing. Awesome. See you then, Sam. Hi, all. It's Ollie again with one more thing before you take off. And that one thing is EdThreads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My free weekly newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary for teaching and learning that you can get free access to. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show, and that I've discovered from scouring the world of education. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to, and I only pass on the very best ones to you. So, if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe to get EdThreads. Stop what you're doing and sign up before you forget. That's ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week, and until next time, keep learning.